Oh, good to see you. My name's Guy. Um, I'm one half of the Guy and Esther family. And Esther grew up here, so I feel like I'm amongst family. And it's just so lovely to be amongst you. And she sent her love as well. So I'm a part of the vineyard in Farnham. Esther and I have been leading that for seven years now. And I uh, was on staff for a number of years before that. So I have been around Vineyard for a long time. But uh, Jonathan Carter was at our wedding and spoke at our wedding. And uh, I just feel like I'm home from home. So it's just so good to be amongst brothers and sisters. So I'm just going to pray and then we'll read the word and see what the Lord has to say. So Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive. I thank you, Father, that you speak to your people. I thank you, Lord, that church is your idea and that we are here for you to glorify you, God. And Lord, I pray that I wouldn't get in your way this morning, but that we would um, just connect with your heart this morning, Lord, that we would be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I assume that the right-hand arrow is yes. Yes. So we are starting James this morning And this is an amazing book. We studied it a couple of years ago back in in our church and did it as a small group. And I'd always loved it, but then I realised I really loved it when I spent time in it. So I was going to read um, from the first section we're doing, 1 to 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings, trials and temptations. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So I learned a new trick this week. I learned the proper way to peel a banana. Now maybe I'm just a little bit behind. Maybe you all know how to do this. But I had always, and I eat a lot of bananas, normally every day I have a banana, And I always have pulled the stalk like this. Can I just ask those that pull the stalk just to stand up for a moment? So that is the majority of us, isn't it? Okay, you can sit down. Those that are still seated, how do you peel a banana? Just one or two people shout out. Pull it like that? Like that? Get both ends and pull it like that. So there are a number of ways to peel a banana. I learned this week that somebody shouted out about chimpanzees, that you just squeeze the end. You just squeeze the end and then peel it like that. And it was just, 
And for me, you know when a banana, okay, this is like, this has been kicking around for a few days, but when a banana is really unripe, it's quite hard, isn't it? But this, I've tested loads of bananas in the last couple of days. <laughs> and I've discovered that there is more than one way to peel a banana, and I think probably the monkeys are probably the people to learn from. Now, I learned this trick from an unlikely source. I learned this trick from Simon Ponsonby, one of my heroes of the faith. He's a minister, a theologian, an author, uh, a speaker. And I was listening to his talk on peeling bananas. <laughs> and so this morning, we're going to be looking at peeling the banana. We're kicking off a series on James. And James peels the banana differently to most people. James peels the banana differently to the majority of people. Martin Luther, the great theologian and church reformer, hated the book of James. He considered it shouldn't have been in the Bible. He called it a right strawy epistle. He really resented this book being in the Bible. He hated the way James peeled the banana and went as far as saying it shouldn't have been in the Bible. Now we understand from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training. So I am really grateful that this book is still in the Bible. There is a lot of lessons we can learn from the book of James. And I want to look at how James peels a banana differently. But before we do that, I want to consider two things. Firstly, what is the aim of this letter? So as we launch out on this journey together, you guys as a church and, and me as a believer and someone that just loves this book, what is the aim of this letter? That's a question to consider, to hold in, in mind as we, as we go through this. The book of James doesn't really need any study guides as you're reading it. It doesn't really need a commentary, a Bible dictionary, a thesaurus, a Bible atlas. It doesn't really need many tools in order for us to understand what the meaning of what the author is saying. We don't need to contextualise the book of James. We don't need to consider what it first meant necessarily for the first readers and listeners. We don't really need to try and understand what their context was like. Because as John Wimber used to say, the founder of the vineyard, the plain thing is the main thing. And the book of James is so flipping plain. It is so obvious. It is so brutal. It is so in your face. It is so uh, just out there. There are no hidden meanings in the book of James. It's easy to understand. Not easy to follow, but it's easy to comprehend. When the Trinity were in plans way back to redeem and to rescue us, when they were considering... The Godhead were considering how they would, how they would um, just free us. I don't think God ever thought that what we needed was another institution, another system, another religion, another structure in which uh, God's people could define themselves or to exclude other people. I don't think Jesus ever thought in his mind that what he wanted to do was to set up another religion. I don't think he ever thought that we're going to set up another way that people can discriminate and judge to define and to exclude. I think Jesus came to represent who God is, to show us what God is like. 
Being a Christian means to be a little Christ. It means to be a follower of Jesus. To follow the example. We are called to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. And James presses this point time and time again. He is, he is brutal in the way that he just continues to say, you have to be doers and not just hearers. Sure, you hear, but you have to do. It's about believing and behaving. It's about applying. It's about actually doing something. The book of James has the greatest concentration of commands in it than anywhere else in the New Testament. There are 108 verses in this short book and over 50 commands. Just time after time after time, James is challenging us and inviting us into a way of living, into a way of being, into a way of behaving. This is a simple and straightforward manual on what it means to live as a Christian. If you're a Christian that doesn't really want to do anything, then this really isn't the book for you. The Christian life isn't simply about what we believe, but how we behave. For too long, the church has been known as a, as a place of hypocrisy and judgment. And it just stinks. Nothing smells as bad as hypocrisy. And the world is crying out for authenticity and integrity. And we understand from social studies that millennials and, and generations uh, coming below the millennials just want authenticity and integrity. We have to hear and we have to do. And James just presses his point home time and time again. It's a process that involves the head and the heart. The head might be the one that's thinking and the heart feels. And when there's a connection between the two, the body does. The head thinks, the heart feels and the body responds. A heart that feels something is a heart that does something because love looks like something. Esther reminded me that there was a talk by DC Talk. Some of you might know it. I don't. Love is a verb. Love is a verb. Love is something that causes us to do something. It is a state, an action or an occurrence. It's not just a concept. It's not just an idea, but it looks like something. Love looks like something. Mark Buchanan, a a Canadian author, said, we are confessional giants, but ethical pygmies. That's harsh, isn't it? He says the church, is, is they know their confessions, their doctrines and beliefs, but when it comes to practicing it, we are ethically stunted. Does that hurt a little bit when you hear that? Karl Barth, one of the great theologians, said, your dogmatics must lead to ethics. What you believe must lead to what you do. If you don't do it, it means you don't really believe it. That's a huge challenge in this book. James asserts that Christianity must be about what we believe and how we behave. And that's the aim of this book. So Lord, bless us as we travel through this together. That we would be doers of your word and not just hearers. So that's the aim of the letter. Now let's have a little look at the author of the letter. It says at the beginning, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant. The actual word in Greek here isn't servant at all, but it's slave. They've just changed it to make it more palatable. But 
James, a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a title of divinity that James is giving to Jesus. It's not just a slave of Jesus, it's a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Saviour. When we consider scripture in context, when we zoom out, which we should do of course, and we look at the bigger picture, we see something interesting in John 7 verse 5. We see that um, that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. Now the word their brothers, some could argue that it might mean friends or followers or acquaintances, but it's almost always exclusively used for siblings. It's a, it's a family word that's used there. Even Jesus' own family, his brothers, those that grew up with him, didn't believe in him. We know that Jesus came from a large Jewish family. We know from scriptures he had four brothers and at least two sisters that he shared his life with, he shared bedrooms with, he ate meals with, he was in family with. And James, the author of this book, was Jesus' brother, or half-brother if we're being technical, because of course Joseph wasn't Jesus' dad. Anyone here that has siblings, a brother or sister, know that siblings are born rivals. (laughs) I have two brothers, I'm the oldest of three, and I have four children. I understand sibling rivalry. I understand what that looks like. When me and my brothers were growing up, we were arch enemies. (laughs) There was no one in this world I wanted to defeat more than my brothers. Now, we are good friends, but I see it in my own kids, just that competition. That competition in the house, that rivalry in the home. There was no point in my life, and there's no point in my kids' life, where they would say that their brother or their sister is their lord, their master, or their king. And they were a slave. <laughs> there was no, it, times it feels like I was a slave to my brothers. But there was no point that I would worship them, I would bow down to them, I would consider them my lord or my king. James grew up with Jesus, knew him boy and man, lived with him, and then came to be a worshipper of his half-brother. I mean, this is extraordinary, isn't it? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A man that grew up with Jesus in the home. So there's an evolution here in James's life. There's a transformation in James's life. James went from someone that didn't believe in his own brother to a man that served, loved and worshipped his brother. Bowed down and called him Lord The Greek Orthodox Church calls James the brother of God. So what the heck happened to cause this transformation? What on earth changed James? James was with his pals one night in a place called the Upper Room. I think you all know where I'm going with this. But they were waiting. As they had been told, they were waiting for the presence of God to come by the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus can only be in one place at one time. And right now he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he's interceding for us. 
But he sent his spirit, his Holy Spirit, the presence of God, to come and live amongst us. And these friends were just waiting there. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came and filled that place. And the church, bang, was born. And from that moment onwards, it continues to grow and spread across this world. And it's still happening today. James was in that group. James was in that place when the Holy Spirit came. And his life was transformed. He went from a sceptic to a lover and a believer and a follower of his own brother, Jesus. He became the head of the church in Jerusalem. As I said earlier, I've been leading Farm Vineyard with Esther for seven years. And I've been this, I was the assistant pastor for a number of years before that. I understand a little bit about church leadership. And I understand that church leadership isn't that easy. I also understand that church leadership in Jerusalem <laughs> must have been a flipping nightmare. It was a, it was a contentious place. Surrounded by, by Pharisees that, that crucified Jesus and Romans that hated the Christians. And James stood up as the head of the church in Jerusalem. That's a massive calling. James is known as James the Just or James the Righteous. And his life embodied the gospel that he preached. He lived what he preached. People would look at James and say, there goes James, James the Just. Or have you seen James lately? Or which one? You know, James the Righteous. He was known for the way that he lived. Even if you didn't believe in what he believed in, you'd be compelled, you'd be drawn to his conviction and his commitment, to his, his, his belief and the way he lived that out. He didn't just write this stuff, he didn't just teach us stuff, but he lived this stuff. I wonder how many of us could hold up a mirror and call ourselves Guy the Just or Guy the Righteous. I wonder what our Netflix account or our, or our search history in our laptops might look like if we were to expose them to the church. I wonder what our finances look like. But James embodied the gospel that he preached. He practiced what he preached. And my prayer for us, for you and for me as a follower of Jesus, is that we would be known by the way that our love looks like something. So peeling the banana... There's a re-evaluation of our values in this, in this text. James is making us rethink how we think about things. Or to peel the banana a different way. And the first re-evaluation, and we'll see him peeling the banana a different way many times as you go through this book in the coming weeks. But the first way is in verse 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So this is the first repealing of that banana. Rejoice when you're under pressure. Rejoice when you're getting your teeth kicked in. Rejoice when they're ramping it up. Worship. When you're under pressure, when it hurts. Not just that, worship joyfully when you're in a place of persecution, the trials. 
Rejoice when you're going through it. James highlights the presence of the trials that people go through. And he says, when you suffer trials. Not if, when you suffer trials. James takes it for granted that those reading this letter are going through the mill. He takes it for granted that we understand what it means to face trials. Being alive, being human, is to suffer and to face trials. R.E.M. wrote many years ago, everybody hurts sometimes. The great French philosopher Rousseau said, as deeply as a man looks into life, he looks into suffering. James highlights the plurality of trials, trials of many kinds, not one or two, but nobody escapes life without scars. And we preach a false gospel when we suggest that by coming to Christ, everything is going to be perfect. Every one of us here is either going through a trial, has just faced a trial, or sadly will go through trials that are yet to unfold. And James offers a perspective on this. He talks about it as a test of faith. Now, I don't believe God choreographs these trials. I don't believe God is sitting there wanting to stick the boot into his dearly beloved. I don't believe he choreographs these trials, but I do believe that he permits these trials in his sovereignty for our good. So will the suffering, of tr- and, will the suffering and the trials that we go through cause us to run to God in prayer or cause us to resent God, to turn away from him? To blame him. Would it cause us to dig deep or to give up? Now, I don't know if any of you guys watched the SAS selection, um, Who Dares Wins on Sunday evenings. There's a little bit of language in it. <laughs> but it's, a, it's, a, it's some civilians that are basically going through a kind of like a, a watered down SAS selection process. And it's just really brutal. And these people are being pushed to their absolute limits in every way, physically and mentally and emotionally. And do you know the one thing that actually defines somebody that, that is worthy of SAS selection is somebody that never, ever, ever gives up. They keep on going. People that dig deep. Not the best, not the strongest, not the fittest, but those that just don't know when they're beaten that keep on going. And God is looking for those in the spiritual realm that dig deep, that keep on going. And James highlights perseverance in trials. A number of times he highlights perseverance. He mentions it twice in this text alone. And the Greek word means to stay under. To stay under. Patience, steadfastness, endurance, resilience. Keep on going unpopular terms and phrases this day in a time when we're when uh, built in we live in a life of built in obsolescence where our TV or our car or our laptop is obsolete in just a few years where nothing's built to last things are just chucked or given up on the church needs the spirit of Churchill who said never ever Ever give in. Keep on going. A church that doesn't give in to sin. 
week in, week out, praying for the same old thing, giving in to the lust of our eyes or the appetite of our flesh, giving in to the world, the flesh and the devil. Don't give in, friends. Don't give up. Keep on going. Winners never quit and quitters never win. So what is the purpose of these trials, this pressure, these difficulties? Because the trials produce something. Becoming mature, complete and lacking nothing. It's a mystery. But sometimes when we're going through pressure we feel we are being exposed, broken, shattered and maybe even diminished. That there's less of us. And yet the opposite is true. Because as God allows us to go through these trials and these tests... As we remain clinging on to him by a fingertip and a prayer, God is not breaking us, but he's making us. That we are being strengthened, we are being developed, we are growing. This is how the banana is being peeled differently, folks. You know, I saw it one way, but I see it the other way. That God is doing something in us. God is at work through these difficult times. Muscles are developed under pressure. You only build muscle when it's being tensed, when it's being tested by weight. Diamonds are formed under intense pressure. Gold is purified in intense heat. God allows us pressure because he wants to make something wonderful out of us. So that the testing we go through becomes a testimony Because God is good. Some of us, I know, are going through some really difficult stuff right now. Just the law of averages would say that however many people there are here together in one room, some of us must be really going through stuff. So I'm not trying to say that you just chin up and pretend it's okay. You don't just put a smile on and just say, yeah, it's okay, I rejoice. Let's be authentic and be real with each other. But do know this, that God is still with you. God is still with us. Because he's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And the thing is that the author of this book knew all about trials. This is believed to be the oldest book in the New Testament, written about AD 42. So, So really, really early after the crucifixion and resurrection. Right at the beginning of the church. And James was taken by the Pharisees, possibly the same Pharisees that crucified Christ. And he was taken to the summit of the temple and he was told, renounce Jesus or we'll kill you. And he couldn't do it. And this isn't just in Christian teaching, this is in Jewish and in secular writing and history. We read this story. James was on the summit of the temple and they said, renounce Jesus. And he said, I can't do it. And they pushed him off. And he fell. But mercifully, he didn't die. And he brought himself to his knees. Like I say, this is in secular and Jewish writing. He brought himself to his knees and he started to pray for those that persecuted him. And so they picked up stones and they started to stone him. James the just, James the righteous, half-brother of Jesus. They started to kill him with stones. And somebody, this man called Rahab, 
a Jewish Pharisee stopped him and said, stop, he's praying for us. This man is praying for those that persecute him. And another one came and smashed him across the head and killed him. James understood. James lived what he taught and what he wrote. Lord, would we be people that continue under that persecution, that pressure, to cling on to you, Father? To hold on to you, Jesus? James is calling us to reevaluate our values, to rethink how we see things. Most of us, in the context of trials, will say, get me out of here. But James says, rejoice and pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom, not how to get out of this, but how to get through this. And there is a crown of life. There is a crown of life that's prepared for you and for me. That God has ready for us. I've been reading a book called Imagine Heaven. I'm only halfway through it, so I I don't know how it finishes. The first half is amazing. I recommend it to anyone that's going through difficulties or watching others go through difficulties. Because this book just reminds us that this life is so temporary. You know, the world will tell us that we need satisfaction and joy right here, right now. This book reminds us that Jesus has got something so good for us. So may we have a heavenly perspective on the situation and circumstances we're in. I'm not saying pretend it's all good, but that we know that we are going on to something so much better. This is a book of people that have, that have basically been clinically dead and then resuscitated. And it's the experiences that they had whilst they were clinically dead. And this book, they've, they've intentionally gone after testimonies of professionals who have nothing to gain and a lot to lose. People like lawyers, bankers, doctors, surgeons, professional people who by sharing their testimony have everything to lose. And it's astonishing. It's astonishing the experience they have and the things they can explain that was happening to their body whilst they were dead. So brothers and sisters, if we can, if it's at all possible, and I'm wrapping up with this, could we possibly, possibly see the banana peeled differently. The way that we've always seen it, would the Lord give us new eyes to see how we might see things differently? Can I ask you to stand? Let's just invite... God to come and meet with us. That we'd be here as not, we'd be here as undoers. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence. Thank you that you're here. Lord, forgive us when we've 
just refuse to see the banana peel differently. I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the godly, heavenly perspective that it offers us. I pray right now, Lord, for my brothers and sisters that might be going through those trials. Lord, that hope would arise, that faith would be increased. Come, Holy Spirit. I don't know how you guys minister in this church. Maybe if, if you're in that place right now, if you'd be willing to just raise a hand and just say, yeah, I'm, that's me at the moment. Thank you. Thank you. Just look nice and high so people can see. And why don't we just, just gather around and just pray God's blessing and peace on our brothers and sisters. Is that okay just to start moving around and start praying? Just if you raise your hand, just, just nice and high so we can see. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. There would be a people of authenticity, a people of integrity, a people of compassion. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.